Have you ever had a garbage coach? Or if you're looking for a coach right now, are you hoping to avoid hiring a garbage coach? Heads up, my clients don't answer that question. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit more about bad coaches. We've covered this before, but it's worth revisiting. We're also going to talk a little bit about gear basics for guys. Stay tuned. And now, coming at you from the Five Star Physique Studio in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is The Drop Set. With your host, Darren Starr. Hello to everyone out there in podcast land. Welcome to The Drop Set, episode 201. I am Darren Starr, your host as always, professional coach, uh, trainer, maybe a programmer coach. Well, I'm a coach. That's what I do. Um, so good to have you back here. We are, uh, we're over a milestone. Uh, episode 200 was, I was going to say last week, but I think it was the week before. Um, and it passed by with just a, a very, very minor champagne cork sound effect. That was all we had in the budget for it. So yeah, sorry. So episode 201 with a similar uh, absence of fanfare. Here we go. So uh, maybe episode 300 will have uh, something special in store. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I got some time to think about it. Maybe I should start planning it now. Uh, a lot's happened since last episode, as is always the case when you take, you know, six months between episodes. Now, it's only been like two weeks, right? But uh, I've been to New York and back for a trip. Uh, I attended a, I attended social media week, which is basically like a advertising and marketing seminar, um, where my goal was to get smart. And instead it really just filled me with anxiety about all the stuff that I'm not doing right. And don't really seem to be capable of doing right. But I've got some, uh, some things I'm going to try and implement here. It's one of those things where it's a conference where you go to it and you don't necessarily take notes like, okay, I'm going to get back. I'm going to do this. 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 Instead you get back and you're like, I just sit down and just think about shit for a while. <laughs> and uh, it's been pretty much nonstop uh, since I've been back, so I haven't had the opportunity to do that. One of the things that has been taking up some time is my band, we played a gig. It was the first time we played live music in four years, strangely enough, to the day. Uh, our gig was on May 17th, and May 17th, 2018 was the last time we played out, strangely enough, under a different name. So um, it was our first time playing any of our original music going back to 2020 when we were first recorded that stuff. Um, so we played um, six original songs. We played for two hours. Um, we played six original songs in there, a bunch of covers, of course, because, you know, you got to play mostly stuff that people know, and you can sprinkle in a little bit of your own stuff if you're not an established act, which, uh, did, did I mention the part that we hadn't played out in four years? We are not an established act. Um, we didn't get paid, but we weren't looking to get paid. It was like, we just want to get out and play. So, um, the cool thing is though, the place where we played, they have music on the regular. Um, it was a slow night. They gave us a Tuesday night. We packed it, um, which packed for the, the space, that, which is uh, where the music is uh, at the bar. And there, there's tables in there. Um, you know, there are 50 people in there and they were all there to see us. It was super cool. Um, it was unlike any crowd that I've ever played to before. You know, when you're not an established act, you get the crap nights usually. So you get the nights where there isn't really anybody there. Um, and that's usually the crowds that we play to. <laughs> 
<laughs> the, the, the crowds of three that really like, oh, God, there's a band tonight. Damn it. Uh, we picked the wrong night to go out. Yeah, sorry. We don't make a ton of noise, though, but um, we played really well. Um, I felt good about how I played. Um, singers did great. We had a guitarist with us as well who on three rehearsals did an awesome job learning all that stuff. So you know, we played like 40 songs in two hours. We really kind of cooked through some stuff um, and covered some territory. So it's a lot to a lot to go over, but it was good. A lot of fun. Um, but practicing for that, getting ready for it, and then kind of like uh, the, the wind down afterwards. And now um, our old bass player was there. And afterwards I talked to him for a bit. And I'm like, you're looking for you're you're looking to come back, aren't you? And he's like, yeah, yeah, okay. So we got a bass player back. So now I just need to find a drummer, and we'll be in good shape. So drummers are hard to find. They are hard to find. So that's been occupying a lot of time. And now we're going through, and we're going to kind of cull the set list down, add in some new stuff. And you know, we've got 40 songs, which we all feel are pretty sharp. Um, so at that point, it's like, okay, now we can kind of be a little less manic about getting things in. We can say like, eh, these handful, I'm not super hot about those. So we can kind of retire some and bring some new stuff in. So, um, it'll be good. It'll be good. But that's occupied a lot of time for sure. Um, the day of the gig that Tuesday, um, was the worst day I've had in my diet in a while, just because I had all these nerves and anxiety going into it. So I missed like half my meals for that day. Just I was in a position where I couldn't really eat or I was going to lose it. So, um, I said worst day on my diet in a while, notwithstanding the New York trip, which, uh, the plan for that kind of fell through at the last minute. So, um, that was, that was an off plan trip for me. Um, I took a few days out of the gym just to kind of chill out and relax, which was much needed, honestly. Um, and, uh, none of the worse for where I came back and I dropped four pounds. Um, that's all back at this point. And I'm just kind of struggling to get over the hump and kind of see things continue to climb up from there. So I think things look okay, but I'm not really in a position where I'm okay with okay. Like I'd like things to be a little bit more convincing. So that's on me. That's, that's on me and the quality of work that I'm putting in on. Uh, I think it's always good, whatever phase you're in to be able to look at what you're doing and pick apart your weaknesses, not so much your like physique weaknesses, but where does your routine break down? What are the things day to day that you do well? And what are the things that you do poorly? One of the things that I do well is follow the plan, like hit the X's and O's. If I need to do cardio, I do the cardio. If I have a meal plan, I follow the meal plan. If I'm in a position where I really need to avoid strain off the meal plan, I can do that. I have no problem getting to the gym and getting my workout in where I struggle with is the mental focus to make sure that every workout is as good as it can be and to really be dialed in and in the moment um, when I'm in the gym and not focusing on like, oh, I'm going to have to get back and do all this stuff. I've got a bunch of errands to run. I've only got this many hours left. So that's my constant never-ending struggle. Um, And one of the things that I've started doing recently um, when I get to the gym is turn everything off. Like I'm in the parking lot, haven't got out of the car yet. Turn everything off and just close your eyes and chill. Just close my eyes, chill, breathe, try and put myself in the moment, focus on what I'm going to try and do that day. Here's what I'm going to be working. Here's what's on the plan. Here's the exercises that I have to hit. I kind of vaguely remember like what my numbers were before. So I'm going to pull out my logbook and target a few spots where I really want to try and make a good increase there. Focus on how I want things to feel as I progress through the workout, the kind of pace that I feel I need to maintain, the kind of distractions that I need to avoid once I walk in the building, all that stuff. So that's what I'm focusing on. There are some days when I do really well at that. 
Other days, not so much. Today was a good day. Today was a good day. As I sit here, my quads feel like they're going to cramp up. Um, so I'm about, what, three hours post-workout right now. Um, but uh, feeling pretty good about today's effort. So um, a, a couple things here to, to tidy up. And then we're going to dig into the meat and potatoes of what we want to talk about here. Um, if you will remember... In the past, I have given a call-in number um, to call in and leave voicemails. Well, that number is defunct. It's inactive. I think I mentioned this on the last episode. And I had a client call in to the number that I had on the website, which turned out was my wife's phone number because I just blindly just typed in a phone number there that I remembered, and it was hers rather than the old call-in number. Uh, oops, that's my bad. Uh <laughs> So that's been fixed. That's gone. There is no call-in number anymore, sadly. Uh, it was just underused, and uh, I, I would love to do it, but you know, there's no sense in maintaining that number if nobody's going to call it. So that, that's me whining. That's as much whining as I'm going to do, I promise. So I think I mentioned that on the last episode, but I didn't get into like what Theron's question actually was. So um, let, let's dig into that just because it's, it's worth addressing. And this is something specific to the workout split of mine that he's going through, but I think we can get some general uh, good lessons from this as well. So he said, we're on a high volume split right now. So there's one exercise on leg day. It's leg extensions where it calls for eight sets of 15 to 20 reps. Like we're just going to hammer the hell out of this, right? We're, we're going to do this and we're going to do, do extensions until the quads just start flying off the body basically. So, um, he said on something like that, because it, 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 it's tricky, like, okay, with, with something like that, and this, you can apply this if it's four sets or three sets or whatever, this just happens to be eight sets, high reps. So he said, is it better to, and then there's four options here. One, select a weight that's challenging, but doable. So you can get as many reps as possible out of each set without stopping. In other words, go for as close to 20 reps as you can get with no pauses. That's option one. That's not a bad option. I like that. Number two, pick a heavier weight where you can't quite do at least 15 reps for each set. Eh, okay. I'm not as big a fan of that because the rep range is 15 to 20 for a reason. So we want to make sure that we're getting at least 15. The way that I read 15 to 20 is get at least 15, but if you can do more than 20, you need to go heavier. But if you're not getting 15, you need to dial the weight back a little bit. That's how, when I write a range like that, that's how I um, interpret it being read. So, uh, option three, pick a heavier weight and rest pause to 20 on each set. And I'm going to say no, just because they're not tagged as rest pause sets. And you want to save that for when it is tagged as something rest pause. Like it's one of those tactics. You don't want to overuse it and rely on it all the time. So we're going to nix that as an option right now. Number four, start out as heavy as you can, getting 15 to 20 reps and drop weight as you work through all sets to keep your rep count high. So, and I don't like that option just because, um, the whole tenet of set to set progressive overload, um, which I harp on all the time is one where you really want to avoid dropping weight as you go through sets. Um, like you want to maintain weight or, uh, or increase it, at least maintain, hopefully increase. There may be some situations where you do have to drop it, but usually that's going to be like, Oh shit, I bought off more than I can chew here. My first set, you know, I'm targeting 12 reps and I got six. Oops. In which case I probably wouldn't even count that set. I'd be like, well, we're going to call that a warm up, even though it was kind of the opposite of a warm up, but we're not going to count that as a working set. Um, but, uh, the, the whole idea here, and this is a concept that I really, really struggle to get across to people who are maybe, um, you know, relatively new to lifting or maybe have been at it for a while, but it's a new concept. And this is one that I, I really kind of struggle to, to convey properly a lot of the time, but it's an important one. And that is the idea that 
whenever you start an exercise, whatever it is, your first exercise in the workout, last exercise in the workout, whatever, um, your first set, it's been probably at least a week since you've done that exercise. So that's a week to kind of forget the finer points of the mechanics of that exercise. And we do, no matter how many times you do it, no matter how many times I've done a dumbbell curl, when I come back and do it, a, a, a first set on a given day, it's been a week since I've done it, and my body has to kind of remember like, oh, yeah, okay, that's right, i got to do this here. Da, da. So you never come in to your first set of an exercise and, and operate and perform well at your maximum weight for that movement for a given rep range, but you want to work up to that max weight. So, you know, you just, it's not how it works. So you want to, you want the idea of, you know, they're not necessarily warm up sets, but they're, the earlier sets are kind of like rehearsal sets. Um, if I can use this, so like it's, it's a music or a theater analogy where during practice, during a dress rehearsal, right? You don't have a crowd. It doesn't count, but you still want to get it right. You want to do everything as close to book as possible. You're not going to stop and call for line. You're not going to stop the song and say, wait, can we start that over? It's like, if you're doing a run-through, you're doing a run-through, warts and all, and you're just going to accept any mistakes that happen. So I like the idea of, you know, if you've got four sets of an exercise, sets one, two, and three are rehearsal sets. They count, but they aren't the real deal. That fourth set is what you're working up towards, and there should be incremental progress up towards that fourth set, which is your max weight. But all the other ones, they still count. They're still hard work. You know, there's still there's still sets where you're making faces, you're shooting spittle across the room, etc. They're hard. They're just not your max, and that max set should be tough, like really tough. That's where we're hitting failure. You're not hitting failure on the earlier sets. But you're keenly aware of where it is. Like you're you're pretty close to it, but you're like, all right, I got to dig deep. I think I can go up another two and a half or five pounds here, or whatever. I think I can do that. And then that next set, it's like, ooh, boy, okay, that was tough. That, and you're kind of inching up towards that line. So that's the right way to approach it. So think of them as rehearsal sets, basically. Um, so I like uh, Theron's option one here. Select a weight that's challenging but doable so you can get as many reps as possible out of each set without stopping. Yeah, and if you need to take a beat, like um, you're you're targeting 15 to 20 reps, and let's say you get 14, but man, you you know you got one more in you, but you really want to push towards that upper range. If you hit 14 and then, you know, the weight comes down, slam, (sighs) 15, 16, you know, if it's like that, like a quick, like two quick breaths, like, yeah, cool, that counts. Um, but like if you're doing squats or something like that and same thing, 15 to 20 rep target, you hit rep 14 and your version of a pause is to rack the bar up. You're done. That sets over. So soon, as soon as the weight comes down and you deload completely, that set is over. So, uh, that's how I would approach it. And as with all, all things, it's not like there's an encyclopedic definition of any of this stuff. This is just how I would interpret it. And it's how I'd, I'd want my clients to interpret it as well. So, um, Okay. Let's talk about some shit coaches, shall we? Or I think I, I use the phrase garbage coach, coaches, and I think I'll, I'll use that phrase in my, uh, my graphics for this, just so I'm not blasting people out of the water with my coarse language, which I know can be a little rough at times. I'm so sorry. Um, so we've talked about this before. I've done a podcast episode back somewhere in the 100s <laughs> about shit or garbage coaches. Um, and it can take on, you know, a lot of different, there's a lot of different ways that somebody can be a sucky coach. Um, and what I'm most interested in is not telling stories. Um, although they will, they will come in, but, um, in trying to 
understand what people should expect from a coach um, from the perspective of someone who considers themselves to not be a shit coach. I think I can comfortably say that. Um, but also like how to identify a coach like that beforehand, but before they, before you hire them. So um, first of all, if they have a podcast where they talk about shit coaches, chances are they hold themselves to a pretty high standard. So <laughs> that's, that's one point in my camp right there. So, um, now just because I talk about it doesn't mean I'm better than everybody else. But, um, you know, for a lot of people, the thought of the quality that they put into their work, isn't really something that they think about too much. And, um, one of the things that I've had, um, cause I've had a lot of coaches over the years, um, some very good, some, uh, average and some lousy. Um, uh, a bad coach can take on a lot of different looks. Uh, so let's talk about like the the soft skills first of all, which is you know how do they how do they work with people? How do they communicate? Um, and you know some some coaches prefer text, some prefer email. Um, I guess there could be others like some want you to DM them on social media or something like that. Whatever. I always prefer email. Um, my current coach, Eva Montgomery, she's all about text. Not how I like to do things, but it's fine. I don't feel like it gets in the way. Um, like she delivers um, uh, nutrition and training plans via text. And so, okay, well, from there, I take that text message. I email it to myself. I put it in a Word doc. I will take the meal plan and I'll, I'll copy it into a spreadsheet just because it's easier for me to follow and process that way. Um, and I, I take the training, I put it into a word doc with each workout on separate pages. I'd get that transcribed in my log work. So it's a little bit more work on my end, but it's fine. I don't consider that a deal breaker at all. Um, I like to do things in a way where, um, I always have record easily accessible of what I've sent to a client. So I do everything in spreadsheets and PDFs. Um, and every time I update that plan, I just create a copy of the spreadsheet, rev the date on it, and make my updates in there and keep a running log on a separate tab of what's being changed and what we're discussing week to week. So, um, But the soft skills, as far as how someone communicates, like um, one of the things that I hate, it's like a pet peeve, is uh, you ask a question and somebody starts to answer it and they use the phrase, and well, as you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, I don't fucking know, dude. That's why I'm asking. Assume I know nothing. And so I try really hard to never use that line when I'm talking to people because that implies to me, the way that I hear that is like, well, you're an idiot for asking this question and blah, 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 blah. And uh, it just rubs me the wrong way. Total pet peeve. I'm probably the weirdo on that one, but that phrase really bothers me. Um, but that, that's a soft skill. You know, when, when you're, I think it's important when you're reaching out to a coach that you have a conversation with the person and that can be a, a phone call or an email. I prefer to do everything via email. I hate talking on the phone to people full stop straight up. That ain't for me. Uh, I'll do it, but I ain't gonna like it. I can guarantee you that. Um, that's the introvert in me. Um, what, what, through whatever means when you have a conversation with that coach, ask some questions, go back and forth, dig a little deep to find some questions that are relevant. Um, you don't want to just, you know, 
start throwing out a bunch of gotcha questions, but things that you know you, you're curious about the answer for. Don't make any assumptions from from this potential coach, uh, but ask how they do things. You know what kind of um, you know what how they would describe their style of programming, how they describe their style of coaching. Um, you know, if, if one question that somebody asked me once, which um, uh, I thought was a great question is, you know, for, you know, somebody that that's worked with you that um, maybe didn't have the greatest success, what would they say about you? Like, Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. I like that. Um, so, I mean, think of questions like that and how the coach responds, not necessarily the, the substance of their answer, the specifics, but how they respond, like the kind of detail that they give you, et cetera. Like if somebody asks those questions of me, I'm immediately thinking, this is somebody who's really serious about this and they want to make sure they're making a good decision. Cool. I'm going to help them. Like I'm going to, I'm going to answer this stuff in the best detail I possibly can. Um, and you know, I've, I, I have certainly been known to, spend way too much time on responses like that. But I just, I feel it's, it's worth the time that, uh, you know, if somebody's going to take the time to, to ask those questions, I feel it's worth a response. that's more than just yes, no, or don't worry about it or whatever, you know, something where, uh, you know, if, if you're like, what, what kind of training style do you, do you, um, do you typically advocate for? Do you favor like, and somebody says like, whatever it takes, I'm like, well, yeah, but what does it usually take? <laughs> Like, that's kind of a non-answer. I guess the question is, do they seem willing to answer your questions and entertain your questions? Do they seem annoyed by your questions? Because if they seem annoyed by your questions before you hire them, think how it's going to be two and three months down the road. You know, <laughs> take that into consideration. Like, you should be getting the absolute best, most highly polished, spit-shined version of their responses. And then hopefully they can sustain that. And that's one of those things you never really know. Um I know that my responses over time with clients tend to get a little bit more um, terse, a little shorter, um, just because there's familiarity. You know, I don't feel like I need to try and, you know, get every last bit of essence of my personality across in an email like I'm trying to when I'm brand new communicating with somebody like, you know, because they hear my voice every week. Um, they, they know. So if, if they're going to ask me a question, I feel comfortable with a one sentence answer because they can kind of interpret the inflection with which I'm saying it because they know what I sound like. And so here I am in email. It's a little shorter, cool. Um, and also, it, it usually generates a faster response, too. So, um, so the soft skills, for me, like, I think it's, it's really easy to identify coaches that just don't know what they're doing. So, I'm much less concerned about the technical side of things. So, you know, look at the coach themselves, but don't necessarily assume that just because they've got a really awesome physique that they can help teach and coach other people towards that as well. Cause you don't know how much of that is genetics. You don't know how much of that is their coach. Um, but you also figure like, you know, at some point, if somebody's doing this, they've done it for themselves. Look at some of their clients as well. If they're, if they've got, uh, even just a handful of successful clients, they probably know how to teach that as well. Um, and you know, certainly nobody's going to have a hundred percent success rate with clients. I certainly don't, you know, it's completely out of your control. <laughs> You can't, you can't force someone to follow a plan if they're not willing to do it. And this industry is full of people who talk really big. And I'm talking about people who sign up for coaching, people who talk really big. You know, I've had people say, I'm ready to change my life. I'm so pumped up for this. Uh, it's like, you know, something's been lit with inside of me and they quit a week later. Like, apparently not. Survey says that was a lie. So, yeah, I've seen that a lot, 
a lot. Um, more than I would care to admit, honestly. You know, a lot of people, they just <laughs> they like the idea of it. They think it sounds good. And then once they see the work that's involved, they're like, oh, yeah, never mind. No, I'd rather uh, just eat what I want and not go to the gym. Okay, cool. I'd rather you do that, too. So let's not waste each other's time. Thank you. Um, so I, I'm less concerned about the programmatic side of things. Like, I think... I think more coaches than not in this industry, you know, you hear about all these people who, you know, receive terrible plans from coaches, et cetera. Yeah. But that's just because there's so many coaches out there. Like don't hire somebody that doesn't have any clients. If somebody's selling you uh, like, Oh, online coaching $50 a month or something like that. I'm like, they're charging that because they can't get anybody to sign up probably because they don't know what they're doing. So um, if you find somebody who's charging a more reasonable rate, follow them on social media, look at their website, see if they have testimonials from people, look at their before and after photos, follow some of their clients, see what they're doing, reach out to them, DM a couple of them. You know, if they aren't, if they aren't posting success stories from their clients, chances are they don't have any. If their social media is all about them, um, which I understand that's, that's, some people that's their brand. Like they are their brand and they, they, for whatever reason, maybe they're choosing to keep their clients progress maybe on a separate account or they just like me, I tend to value my clients privacy. So I only put stuff out there that typically that, um, a client has already shared and then I just repost it. You know, it's, I feel like it's easier to overcome any privacy issues that way. Um, otherwise I, I fully respect everybody's right and desire to not have their progress pictures posted online. I think that's fair and reasonable and that's kind of my default expectation. Um, but if they don't have anything posted and it's all just pictures of themselves, especially if they're all like photo shoot professional pictures of themselves, I'm really going to be questioning that person and thinking like, I don't know if they're a coach so much as they're trying to be a celebrity or an influencer. Um, so see who their clients are, follow their clients, interact with them, um, see if you can get some of them to follow you back, and then reach out, DM them, and just point blank ask them, hey, um, what do you think about your coach? I'm, I'm looking for one. So, uh, and I would, I would like to think that any of my clients that are on social media, if they were approached by someone asking about me, they'd have good stuff to say. So, um, yeah. Uh, and I, I think you, you'll find, you know, usually the people that are, are posting on social media and tagging their coach are kind of like the evangelicals. They're the ones that are really in on it. Um, but I, I don't think that means that you don't get an honest opinion from those people. You're getting an opinion based on their experience, which those people put a lot into their program and they're getting a lot out of it. And so, you know, everybody's going to have a higher opinion of their coach the more they put into their program. I think that's fair. So all that to say, I think it's pretty easy to vet a coach for quality based on what they um, what they know, like just their raw knowledge of, hey, can they get the job done? Uh, a more important thing for me, I've never had a coach that I would say didn't know what they were doing. They have different styles, different approaches, different ways of communicating. Um, and uh, that, that's the soft skills. Like one, one question that, uh, I think would be good for a lot of people to ask a potential coach is, you know, if I have a check-in and I've been struggling, um, how do you handle that? Like if I've had a bad week, how would you handle that? Like my response to that would be pretty long and complex. Um, some coaches out there would, <laughs> would say, I would ask if you really want to do this, which I'm like, Whoa, okay. All right. So you just can't have a bad week. Mm, okay. Red flag, unrealistic expectations. I don't care who you are. If you're a human being on planet fucking earth, you're going to have a bad week. So how would your coach respond to that? You know, would they actually 
coach you or would they just say do better which you know some people might need that kind of a response i don't know i don't i I need a more nuanced response from that than that from my coach um and i've had coaches where they just give me that response before and be like yeah this isn't gonna work so that's a question that i would ask now if somebody were to ask me that like hey um hypothetically uh we're checking in i've had a really bad week um uh, what would your approach be? Uh, my honest answer would be, um, you know, I approach everything like uh, I did in my previous work experience in the tech industry, which is you're presented with a problem. You have to troubleshoot it. So we had a bad week. Why? Um, and it's like, well, I didn't follow my diet. Why? Well, it's because I, you know, I ate this instead of that. Why? And it's not like I'm trying to be a two-year-old and just asking why, 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 why. But it's like we're peeling layers back at the onion. And eventually, there's an answer in there. And it's it might be like, you know, I woke up late one day and I had to go get my workout in. And or I, you know, uh, I had to stay late after work and then um, I'd worked out early in the morning, but I had to stay late after work. I had to hurry home and, you know, do something with the family or whatever. And I missed going to the grocery store. Oh, okay. So we didn't shop. So you didn't meal prep. So therefore you didn't have foods ready. Therefore you fell off your diet. So it's a chain reaction of things that got you there, but you've got to approach it from a coach as a troubleshooter. And I know that sounds really, really basic. Someone out there is like, well, duh, but I tell you what, the other thing is you need a coach who understands that bodybuilding is a really emotional thing. Like you're talking about, you know, trying to change your body and it's a hard fucking process. And any coach who says, oh, this is easy. I mean, run as far away as you can from that person because that person doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. Maybe it's easy for them, but it's not easy for anybody else. So you don't want that person in your corner because they're not going to understand what you're going through. Um, It's hard. It's hard. And you tend to beat yourself up a lot, which means that also you don't necessarily see yourself or your own problems fairly or with a clear set of eyes or anything like that, right? So while this hypothetical scenario about like, oh, I didn't go grocery shopping and therefore meal prep didn't happen. It's like, well, duh, obviously. But, you know, at the end of the day, somebody goes to check in and they're feeling bad about their week and they're just kind of beating themselves up and they're just like, I had a shit week. And they type that and they send that to you maybe with some other details about other crap. Um, and then that that's the narrative that's in their head. Like, I just had a crap week. I failed at this. I can't do this. I suck. I'm a worthless human being. My dog hates me. But, and, you know, it's just it, it spirals out of control and it can go downhill real fast when really the problem is, hey, hold on, chill up. You know what happened? You missed going to the grocery store. Let's not blow it out of proportion here. That's all that happened. So we can see how one thing, now it's a big thing, but that one thing can lead to this whole thing spiraling out of control. Let's look at the previous week when we checked in. What were some of the things that you were saying then? Hey, we're doing good. We're doing good. And then one bad thing happened and then suddenly it's a total 180. So pull yourself out of that hole, put the shovel down, stop digging deeper and climb out of it because we can fix this really easy. That's how I approach stuff because whatever shit week people have had for whatever reason, I've probably done the same thing. So I get it. I know. But I also know like how easy it is to lose perspective and be a prisoner of the moment. And when you make one bad decision, and you feel crap about your week, how that tends to erase all the good stuff that happened, even if it wasn't really that long ago. It was four or five days ago when things were really flying high. So um, you've got to you've got to have a coach who's willing to dig in and maybe their approach is different from mine and that's fine. But they can't just have an expectation that everything's perfect all the time. Um, 
the other thing, and this kind of dovetails with the next thing that I want to talk about, which is gear for guys, because we talked about some really basic gear things, and then also we dug into some specifics on women a handful of episodes ago. Um, but uh, if, if that's an avenue that you're looking to pursue, what kind of experience and background does your coach have in that? And I would say, realistically, um, I, 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 would, I would just point blank ask the question, first of all. Like, hey, I'm, I'm looking to run an anabolic cycle. Do you have experience with that? Um, are you comfortable with that? And yeah, hopefully you get an honest answer there. Um, and uh, you, you can also determine a lot. about Because if somebody just asks me that point blank, I'd be like, yes, I'm comfortable with that. Yes, I do that. That's part of it. Okay, cool. Um, but uh, some follow-up questions might help prompt a little bit of a better answer. So um, like if that's all somebody wants to know, hey, do you do that? I'd be like, yep. Uh, and then I probably won't dig too much deeper in on that. Uh, usually that's like a very early preliminary question. And then later on, I might dig a little bit deeper. Um, but as a, a potential client of a coach, you could ask some questions like, you know, what, what's your general approach with stuff like that? And if someone were to ask me that, um, I would say, well, I need to get your full cycle history. First of all, like, have you run anything before? If so, what, when, how much, for how long, how long ago was it? How long have you been off everything? If you are, if you're on anything right now, what are you on? What dose, how long, et cetera. What are your sources on this? Do you have a prescription? Is it black market? Where's it coming from? Is it a domestic source international? And those are all things that I want to know. Um, and really a lot of that answer is just to demonstrate like, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. And, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not just going to say, oh, well, this is what I do for everybody. Just because, you know, anybody that has like a base cycle that they put everybody on, it's like, mm, yeah, that's not going to be good. You know, it's either going to be too beginnery for some really advanced guys or too advanced for some really beginnery guys. So uh, it, that is very much not a one size fits all answer. So, um, so th this was kind of a follow up on the previous shit coaches discussion. So I think, I think we're good on that. I just, a few things that I wanted to get out there so we can kind of go on now to, to gear for guys. So, um, boy, where to start? This is a big topic. I guess one thing that would have been smart would have been to, uh, revisit the gear 101 episode before recording this. So I can remember what I talked about, but we're just going to approach this from the beginning. Um, assuming that we're having a conversation just for guys. So ladies, sorry, you can check out if you want, or Hey, if you're curious, stick around. Um, uh, caveat disclaimer. Um, first of all, uh, get your blood work checked beforehand. Um, I think you should be of a certain age and a certain level of experience before you're really considering this stuff. Like definitely early twenties at the absolute earliest. And, you know, realistically you should be lifting for, I don't know, five years at least. I mean, you need to have some really good, and I'm not talking like, Oh, I started lifting a little bit when I was in high school and now I'm, I'm 21. I've, I kind of, I lift a little bit and then I take a few months off. Like, no, I'm talking like five years of like serious training like consistent, like get, get this, get the muscle on your frame that your body is willing to build by itself. Just naturally get that before you start doing any of this, because, because why not? You know, I mean, you're going to learn more that way. You're going to have to work a little bit harder that way as well. Um, I mean, honestly, running gear is just, it, it's it, one thing it does. Is it, it gives you, um, 
it kind of requires you to work harder to get more out of it as well. So if you don't already know how to work hard, you're not really going to maximize what you get out of this. So, um, you know, plenty of guys who, who run gear, um, but start too early, they get to a point that they could have gotten to naturally without it. And so therefore, I mean, it, if you wait, I think you raise your ceiling on where you can go a good bit. So, um, that being said, of course, not medical advice. So, um, talk to your doctor. You should have a doctor that's aware of what you're doing also so that you can have a frank conversation with them. And when you go over blood work, they can talk to you about it and you don't have to be like, Oh, I don't know why my testosterone came back at 1800. I don't know anything about that. Uh, I must be a genetic freak. You know, just be straight with them, you know? Um, and realistically, if you're, if you're determined to run this stuff and you have a doctor that will not listen to you and says, no, no, you should not do that. But well, you need a new doctor then realistically, because, um, and a doctor should know like me telling somebody not to do it doesn't mean that they're going to stop. <laughs> so, you know, what you need to do is have, uh, have it be, you know, physician managed or at least observed, um, from somebody who knows what they're doing. And, you know, a lot of the doctors that would just put a hard no on it also just don't know anything about it too much. So, um, just a caveat there. Uh, I'm also not advocating for or encouraging this. Um, but I'm just throwing it out there. You know, people are going to do it. And so I think you should know that there are ways to do it intelligently and there are ways to do it stupidly. Uh, very generally, the way to do it stupidly, there's two main things. Um, not using testosterone as the base of your cycle and running too much shit. And whether that means too many compounds or just too, too much of uh, just a couple compounds, um, really dumb, really dumb. You just don't need to. You don't need to. Now, that being said, also, you'll find a lot of pros out there, the ones that will talk frankly about it, who um, will... It's a very common talking point that, you know, oh, you'd be surprised how little gear a lot of the pros use. Like, well, maybe, but a lot of them use a shit ton also. Don't, be, don't, don't think otherwise. <laughs> Like the really big dudes, they aren't running 400 milligrams of test a week. Okay. I can promise you that they're running a lot of shit. Uh, but also like, you know, they're, they're operating at a level where, you know, they've been doing this for a while. They have the work ethic, they have the experience with it. Um, and just like, you know, I, I, I would say like my general line with CrossFit workouts is there are a lot of movements that I don't like in CrossFit. Um, that I just think are uh, signs of bad programming um, just because the in, the injury risk is higher and it's just not worth it. Well, if you're a competitive CrossFit athlete, that, that's one of those things that you just accept kind of comes with the territory. If you're Joe or Jane Doe just trying to, you know, kind of stay in shape and doing it on the weekends, et cetera, you don't need to do that shit. It's just dumb. And if you're just trying to stay in shape, the risk of injury is not worth it. If you're competitive, you kind of accept the risk of injury. You know, it's kind of like, would you drive 220 miles an hour going to the grocery store? No, but on a NASCAR track, yeah, that, that risk comes with the territory. So I know that's not quite a, exactly a fair comparison, but, and I just made a 220 miles an hour. That, that seems like an appropriate speed for a NASCAR race. Is that right? I don't know. Um, clearly I'm not, I'm not a big NASCAR fan. Um, so, uh, now, now still a lot of the pros run, uh, very high doses of stuff. Is that smart? Well, no, but again, you know, 
because of what they're doing, they're willing to accept more risk. And uh, like what we talked about in the last episode about dead bodybuilders, one of the dumbest things you could do is, you know, just be reckless about it, not get your blood work checked or get it checked, see something alarming and then not act on it. So um, worth listening to episode 200 if you skipped it to get here um, about that, just because I won't rehash the whole thing here, but um, just about anything negative that can come as a result of using anabolics is something that's going to creep up on you over time and is detectable on blood work. So check it regularly. And when you see something on there, that's alarming, take action, take action to fix it. So, um, so as a guy, how do you put together a cycle? So let's say I'm a 25 year old guy. I've been training hard for five years. You know, I, I didn't start until I was, you know, a couple years in college, but I, I took to it really quickly and I've seen some really good gains. I love training. I follow a pretty reasonable diet. I'm looking to maybe hire a coach and jump on a first cycle. Cause I feel like I've, I've put a lot of muscle on my frame, but I kind of feel like I'm, I'm tapped out a little bit. Um, First of all, if I'm a coach in that situation, I would say, cool, let, let's let's keep it on natural for a few months and see how it goes and see what a shift in programming and a shift in intensity that a good coach can bring to the table might be able to do for you. And maybe you are kind of tapped out. Maybe we do see like, oh, man, yeah, this is really slow and sluggish. Okay. Or maybe we can still get some good quality gains um, before jumping into the ring. So um, that's the first thing that I would typically recommend for people. But let's say we're at a point where it's like, okay, we're ready to jump on first cycle <clears throat> what are we going to do? And there's only one appropriate answer for that is that you're going to run a testosterone only cycle. That is it. So testosterone is the kind of like the, the master key male hormone that governs everything else. So, you know, it's, it's the thing that comes back in a hormone panel that we care about free and total testosterone. So that has to be the basis of everything. Why? Because anything else that you introduced into the system that's an anabolic that is not testosterone is going to drop your body's natural production of testosterone. So if you bring, um, let's say, you know, the, the most common thing is probably dianabol or anadrol because those are orals. It's just a pill. You take it. Cool. Okay, cool. I'm on steroids now. Sweet. I should be seeing something. You introduce that your test levels go down and suddenly you, um, you gain weight, you gain a whole bunch of water retention and you end up looking worse after your four to God forbid, eight week cycle of anadrol at 50 milligrams a day. Um, yeah, it's, and, and then you have a gnarly time recovering from that for months afterwards as well, because you ran a, I, I would not even call it a cycle. You ran a compound and you ran the wrong compound. And you didn't do your research. So, uh, anything that you want to run that would be classified as an anabolic, um, you have to run it with testosterone in your system. That is not the case for women. Women don't have to do that. It will still drop down their natural production of testosterone as well, but it is not high enough statistically where that drop has any kind of significant negative impact. So it's just not as much of a concern for women. Um, that being said, women who supplement with testosterone, very low dose, um, see good results too. So um, what I would do for, for guys and also, you know, worth mentioning, Go to your doctor, get your blood work drawn. If your test is low, you can probably get testosterone prescribed to you. Uh, now, it's probably not going to be what you might run if you were on a cycle, but having that prescription, um, you know, that, uh, that invalidates a lot of concerns, a lot of the legality of it anyway. So, um, 
just worth a note, worth a note there. So, um, if you're going to run TRT, um, prescribed from a doctor, it would be anywhere from 100 to 250 milligrams a week, probably depending on the physician. And they might, um, say like, Oh, we're going to do, I was talking with a guy in the gym recently and he has prescribed testosterone and he said he was getting a hundred milligrams every two weeks. And I told him just point blank. I'm like, without seeing your blood work, that's probably, you know, probably doing absolutely nothing for you. <laughs> so uh, it's a really low dose and you're only getting that low dose every two weeks. I'm like, realistically with testosterone, you should probably be dosing it twice a week minimum. Um, so instead of a hundred milligrams every two weeks, uh, you, you'd be better off doing 25 milligrams twice a week, um, which is the same dose, but still like that's too low. Uh, that's not going to do anything. You know, it's not going to, you know, move the needle, so to speak. So, uh, it, it's gotta be enough where it's actually going to cause an impact in your body. I would say 150 milligrams per week is probably about the lowest baseline. I would, um, expect to see any kind of positive impact from as far as TRT goes like physician prescribed TRT. Um, 250 is fairly aggressive for TRT, but not, uh, not, uh, completely abnormal or anything like that. That seems reasonable to me. If you're going to run a non TRT cycle, like trying to do an actual like anabolic blast, um, I would probably recommend typically starting at four to 500 milligrams a week. That is kind of like the tried and true. Hey, you know, Johnny's first cycle, you know, 400 to 500 milligrams of testosterone a week with uh, an aromatase inhibitor thrown in. So aromatization is the process where the body takes your, uh, body sees testosterone and converts it to estrogen. So it aromatizes to estrogen. That's a bad thing. So you don't want your estrogen getting out of whack in the body. So an aromatase inhibitor, as you might guess, stops that process or at least uh, dampens the process significantly. So an aromatase inhibitor like Arimidex, um, uh, or anastrozole, same thing. So brand name versus generic. Uh, so you would take testosterone plus your aromatase inhibitor. Some people would advocate for an anti-estrogen like Nolvidex instead. Um, I mean, what, what, what's better, you know, uh, taking your estrogen and lowering it or preventing that estrogen from getting high in the first place? I would say preventing it from getting high in the first place. So an aromatase inhibitor is pretty much always going to be superior um, to an anti-estrogen, unless you're looking to take your estrogen that you have and drop it even lower still. Like if you wanted to really in the last few weeks before a show, really tamp down that estrogen, you wouldn't want to run it. You wouldn't want to like bury it underground for a long period of time, but in a couple weeks leading up to a show, yeah, yeah, you'll dry out a little bit more from that. So uh, aromatase inhibitor is, uh, the way to go, uh, along with that. Uh, so with guys, when you run on cycle, guess what? Your balls are going to shrink. So, uh, there two, two schools of thought there. First of all, doesn't matter. Uh, but it can be a little bit of like a, a, an ego bruise, if you will. So, um, a lot of guys will run HCG, um, which is a compound that can be injected subcutaneously. Uh, think of that as like, uh, you know, it, it's similar in how it works um, to like growth hormone. Uh, in the, it, it's in a little vial. You mix bacteriostatic water in with it, and then you just do a, a subcutaneous injection with that. Really easy, pretty much painless, and you do that, you know, like you know, twice a week or something like that um, along with it. So the in, introduction of HCG 
will kind of keep the boys from shrinking too much. So, um, is that something that you really have to do? No, no. Um, it, it's one of those things that's very much optional. Um, and it's just about like how much, you know, a little shrinkage there is going to bother you. So, uh, I leave that, uh, up to you, but that is something that you can throw into the mix. It's an added expense, but it's not ridiculous or anything like that. It's an added hassle as well, just by having another injection to manage, but it's not a big deal. So, um, you know, it's kind of like as far in my personal opinion, flip of the coin, like whatever. Um, so that's a good first base cycle. Now, why do we want to keep it so simple initially? Well, it's because every cycle that you're going to run in the future is going to be um, using testosterone as a base. And so it will be present in everything. You'd want to have a good idea of how it works in a vacuum without anything else in your system. So that then if you run your second cycle that throws in an additional compound or something like that, and you see something different, you know, it's from that other compound. Otherwise, if you start your first cycle and it's got two or three compounds in there and you see some weird stuff, you don't know what's causing it. Like, oh shoot, is my testosterone too high? Or is it, is it the EQ? Is it the Primo? Is it the Deca? What is it? What's causing this? So, um, there's right and there's wrong ways to do everything and everybody's got their opinion on this. But as far as I'm concerned, the right way to do a first cycle is it's testosterone only plus an aromatase inhibitor. Anything beyond that? Well, guess what? You know, you're going to run multiple cycles in the future, right? What's the rush? You know, what it's like if you're trying to learn how to guitar, how to play guitar, you don't pull up the tab for eruption and just say like, this is going to be the first song that I learn. Like, no, you start with smoke on the water, dipshit. Come on. You know, you, you work up to that. Work up to it. It's not like you play smoke on the water and you're never going to learn another song after that and you only get to play that. It's like you, you got to start somewhere. Okay. So don't try to bite off more than you can chew with the first cycle. So it's your, it's your smoke on the water cycle. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. Um, or, uh, you know, you shook me all night long. Something like that. That was one of the first songs that I learned how to play on guitar. Not well, but I learned it. Um, or, uh, well, I, I could spend a Oh, Iron Man. Sure. Yeah. Um, another classic. So that's a first cycle. So what, what would you expect from that? Well, I always tell people don't expect anything, you know, let's see what happens because a lot of it has to do with how good your diet is. Um, what your goals are, how your body takes to it, the quality of the gear that you have. There's so many variables that go into that. So, don't expect anything, but observe and then critically assess um, as the cycle progresses and it, as it gets towards the end, if it seems like it's worth it, because it should seem like it's worth it. Now, you might not blow up 30 pounds on your first cycle. God forbid you don't want to. That's not You're not building 30 pounds of muscle, so uh, you, know, you don't want to blow up 30 pounds on the scale. That would be a, a bad thing. It's more like an allergic reaction than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you need to have, be able to have an honest conversation with yourself. Like, you know, if, if you're going to run gear, the expectation is mm, I'm going to expect you to work your fucking ass off full stop. And if you're not, don't run it. Don't run it. Like it, it, it's not for like, Oh, I just want to, you know, I want want a little extra boost in my workout. No, if you're going to run it, like be serious about this. Like it's not, it's not for, it's not for casual weekend warriors. I don't want to be a gatekeeper on it or anything like that, but you know, if, if you're not super serious about it, you don't need this. 
period. That's it. That's it. So, um, you, you need to be working your ass off and I'm not so worried about like somebody's adherence to a diet because that's a very easy thing to kind of manage and assess. But I'm, I'm much more concerned about how hard you're pushing in the gym. Are you leaving reps on the table? Are you cutting things short? Are you maybe going a little too light? Um, you know, or is your form garbage? You know, are you working the muscle correctly? You know, there's a, there's, it's getting in a good lift is more art than science. So, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm watching somebody and I'm watching them train, that it needs to look a certain way. Um, and I'll know it when I see it, but you know, I don't want to see you leaving reps on the table. So if results are underwhelming, you know, and you're following the diet and we suspect that the gear is of okay quality, it's going to come down to your training intensity. Like you're leaving too much on the table. So we got to find a way to dig deeper. So that's why I don't necessarily tell people like, here's what to expect other than I would say, you know, it will take about with, with testosterone only, it will take about four weeks for it to really kick in. And whatever you're feeling in about that four to six weeks in moment is about as, uh, uh about as hot as it's going to get. Um, and then it will sustain that for the rest of the cycle. But at that point, your levels are up to a point where they're, they're pretty much at cruising altitude and, uh, you should be, you know, you should be feeling pretty much tippy top at that point. So beyond that, uh, I don't tell, I don't encourage anyone to go into it with expectations, but just the expectation that you're going to work harder than you ever have before. And if you can do that, you'll be in good shape. Um, as far as managing additional compounds down the road, um, Boy, there's a lot of uh, a lot of potential places we could go with that. I think one of the first things that's worth discussing here, and again, this is all the opinion of one man, me. And you know, you read enough and listen to enough other stuff, you'll get other opinions as well. And that's kind of the point of the whole thing is, you know, listen to people, form your own opinions based on that, read other stuff as well. Um, and clearly, like you know, I think I mentioned this before. I'm not really advocating that anybody do this, but if you're going down that road, I think it's good to have some informed opinions. So, um, it's it's important to have when you're constructing a cycle as a guy to have in mind like a long term roadmap of what you're going to do. What is the goal? What are we hoping to gain from this? It's a, if it's a competitive goal, if it's more of a like well just a general aesthetic related goal, have a plan in place and put together a sketch that's a couple years long so that you can kind of figure out what these phases are going to look like. Yeah, a couple of years. Whatever you're envisioning as your goal, you're not going to get there in three or four months, you know, unless your goals really need to be readjusted and kind of amped up a little bit because I always tell people, if you can set a goal as three to four months out, like a big picture goal three to four months out, then you probably need a more ambitious goal. It's like if my goal as a guitarist is I want to be able to play smoke on the water, um, you know, okay, great. What are you going to do next week? You know, <laughs> like, unless you want to learn the solo for it too, because it's a pretty good solo. It's a little tricky, but uh, tricky to get it right and have it like just, mm, just right. Anyway, um, major props to Richie Blackmore, by the way. So you got to have that plan in place. Um, what's it going to be? And the, the first distinction that I think you need to make is or decision actually is, are you going to cycle and come off or are you going to blast and cruise? Um, and if the goal is, well, I want to run a cycle. I want to see how it feels. And then I want to take some time and maybe consider if I'm going to do a second cycle after that. Okay, cool. I'd say that's a responsible approach. And at that point you cycle on, you come off everything, you do a proper post cycle and then evaluate from there. Uh, 
otherwise, if you're like, well, you know, my goal is to gain 50 pounds and I'm investing five years to do that. Okay, cool. Well, you're, you're a better candidate for blast and cruise at that point. There can be a longer discussion had about how long you should follow that before you come off everything anyway, because you'll still want to. Um, but you can string several cycles together, um, which would be the blasts, and then bridge those with a cruise period where you're just running testosterone at a lower dose for somewhere between like four and 12 weeks, probably. So you're still on something, but you know, it, it's a dose that, you know, would theoretically be prescribed by a physician as well. And whereas the blast is not something that a typical physician would prescribe. So, um, make a decision as far as which approach is better for you. Um, for a full cycle or for a blast, either way, um, the duration of that is going to depend on what the compounds are. So you can find some compounds if you put it together where it's like, yeah, 8, 10, 12 weeks is about right. And others were 20 to 24 weeks is fine. So if you're running like moderate dose testosterone and equipoise, um, that's something that you can run that relatively long term, like 20, 22, even 24 weeks isn't totally unheard of there. Um, 16 for a, a fairly conservative dose like that, the conservative cycle that's also conservatively dosed, you know, nothing too crazy as far as numbers are concerned, um, is, uh, you know, 16 weeks is, is a, a pretty short duration for a cycle like that. So, um, it just depends. It depends on what the components are. Um, and you know, how, how aggressive they are. And certainly you could run a cycle that's more sophisticated than that. Something like trend testosterone and equipoise, um, where the trend, uh, you maybe don't run for that whole thing. Maybe you run that for like 10 to 12 weeks and then pull it out and you can continue with the other two uh, for, you know, maybe 20 weeks and then you pull the EQ out and then you run just the test at a reduced dose for eight weeks as a bridge or something like that. So those are big picture, like macro view decisions um, that you can, that you should consider read up on and decide like what style of, uh, of, um, cycle do you want to run like on and off or blasting cruise? Um, a, a word also on orals. Um, so, uh, orals are very appealing because they don't involve needles, right? So it's just a pill. You swallow it. Great. Awesome. Um, you know, think like, uh, the matrix versus captain America, you know, the matrix. I mean, granted that was a reality changing pill, but uh, it was a pill. It was pretty easy to swallow versus Captain America. When Steve Rogers gets his, <laughs> gets his, his trend injections, that looks pretty painful, right? Which one of those two is, you think is going to be more appealing? Ooh, man. Um, I also find it, I find it very funny whenever I rewatch Captain America, the first one. Um, it's like, man, this is really just a commercial for steroids. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny to go back and look at it like that. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. That's, uh, you go, Steve Rogers, you go, you go with your bad self. Um, so when it comes to orals though, I'll tell you that typically I'm not a big fan. Um, so the one thing, you know, anything that you take orally has to pass through the liver and every oral steroid, every oral medication has some degree of liver toxicity or hepatotoxicity. Um, some are more harsh than others, like Anivar, fairly mild. Winstrol, a little more harsh. Um, something like Halo, very harsh. Uh, ibuprofen, pretty mild, but not zero. You know, it, it has a degree of liver toxicity as well. Pretty much anything that has to pass through the liver is going to impact it negatively in some way. Um, so 
especially for a growth phase, I'm really not a big fan of orals at all. It's very common if you're going to run like a test and DECA or test and equipoise cycle to throw an oral in there for the first four to six weeks as what would be called a Kickstarter. As I just mentioned, you know, it takes four to six weeks for the levels of those injectable compounds to really kind of get up to where your um, your hormone levels are kind of optimized and kind of at their maximum level at their ceiling. Um, and taking an oral, which has a much shorter half-life, it works much faster, something that you take daily, uh, will give you a little bit of that boost right off the bat. Um, and a lot of people swear by that stuff. I don't like it specifically just because of the, uh, the liver side effects. Now, the thing about the liver is it's a fairly resilient organ. You can take supplements that will help keep it healthy, happy, and in check. Um, if you run orals moderately, like if you run um, Anadrol as a Kickstarter to an anabolic cycle, again, don't run Anadrol by itself. That is a terrible idea. You've got to have testosterone in the mix as well. Um, more guys have run into problems. I mean, the, most of the problems that um, guys run into with cycles that don't do reading beforehand is they just get some anadrol from somebody and they just take it with nothing else. Like you're going to have a bad time. That's going to suck for you. Sorry. You should read more. Um, but if you take it for four weeks at the start of a testosterone based cycle, um, great. You'll get some benefit from that. Is it worth it? I don't know. Maybe, Maybe I prefer to just leave it out. It, it makes things simpler. It, it's less of a complicating factor. Um, but if you do run it like that, I mean, yeah, you run it for four weeks, you pull it out, you take care of your liver with some over the counter medications. Um, whatever spike there is, if you were to get your blood work, like every handful of weeks and check your liver enzyme values, you would see that it recovers pretty quickly if you take care of it properly. And especially if you're running it like, you know, run it for four weeks and then I'm going to stop it, finish out this cycle and then come off everything completely or cruise for eight weeks and then start another cycle. Well, at that point, kind of, if you, if you game it out, you're looking at running it for about four weeks at a time, maybe twice a year. Not much, not much. If that's the plan, um, where people get into a bigger issue is when you start introducing orals into a pre-contest cycle, because then you're often running more than one. You're running them for longer durations, and there's a tendency to be more reckless because you feel like adding more of it towards the end of the show is going to help you more, and so it can really kind of get carried away. So you got to have a plan in place that looks reasonable, and then you've got to be comfortable not calling an audible on that and saying, "Well, I'm kind of behind, so let me bump my winstrol up to 100 milligrams a day." Like, don't. Just don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. So um, generally speaking, not a big fan of orals. Um, they have a time and a place. But I think um, when I'm advising people um, on, on cycles, orals don't really play a big factor outside of ancillary compounds like, you know, your anti-estrogens, your aromatase inhibitors. Those are going to be oral medications. So but as far as oral anabolics, not a huge fan. Personal choice on that personal choice. Um, one man's opinion, like I said, you talk to a hundred other coaches, I would say probably 80 to 90 of them are going to be in the pro oral camp. Um, I'm in the minority on that one. I fully recognize that and I'm okay with it. I'm good with it. So I stand by it. Um, and again, that answer will vary depending on the person a little bit. Um, but if somebody doesn't really know, they're like, Hey, what do you think? Well, here's what I think. I, I think leave it out. You know, let's just stick with injectables. It's easier to manage that way. Um, you know, we, we don't mess with your liver at that point. We're just making things simpler and easier. So, um, 
when it comes to injectables, so we know testosterone has to be in there. It has to be the basis of every cycle. It, if, if it's not the only compound, it doesn't necessarily have to be the compound that is the highest dose. Although if you find a lot of cycles online, like if you go to like steroid.com and view, they have a whole bunch of um, uh, example cycles um, posted there, which is good to read up on just because their write-ups are really pretty good. They have um, compound write-ups that go into really good detail on the history of it, um, the pros and cons of it, common dosage. It's just a really good online resource. It's all free. So, um, but I think most of the, most, if not all of the cycles that they have that are plugged in as examples, they all have testosterone in them as they should. And testosterone is also the compound with the highest dose in all of them. And that's just kind of common conventional wisdom, but it doesn't have to be like that. As long as you got it in there, you can pull it down a little bit and be more aggressive with other compounds as well. But it's about, you know, what do you want to get from it? What do you want to get from the cycle? Um, and a lot of it also is considering one big primary fact that's pretty much immutable, which is every time you run a cycle like this, you are conducting a chemistry experiment using your body as the lab. And I think that is something that you've always got to remember, um, which is not to say that things are going to explode if you mix it wrong, but you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. You don't know how your body is going to react to these compounds. It has been, you know, every anabolic steroid, the, the one thing that I think is really like a, a key argument for taking an anabolic as opposed to taking like a SARM. If you're going to take something, um, you know, setting aside the legality of it for the moment here, but if you're going to take something, like why would you take an anabolic as opposed to a SARM? Well, every anabolic has been clinically tested to death for decades. SARMs have not in humans. So uh, that's the difference. So with anabolics, we know what they do. We, we know what their strengths are. We know what the pros are. We know what the cons are. We know what the side effects are. What we don't know necessarily is in bodybuilding terms, we're typically going outside of what a conventional dose for these would be. Um, so you're still conducting an experiment. And also, you know, just like, you know, if you take an antibiotic, um, you may find after taking it for a week that it's not hitting the, uh, the infection that you're trying to treat with it. And you've got to switch to a different antibiotic, you know, uh, certain things in your body respond to certain things. Well, certain things, not so well, same thing with anabolics, you know, everybody's, you know, internal, uh, chemistry is going to be a little bit different. And so, you know, DECA may work really well for some people and less well for you. So that's why it's good when you're first starting out with a compound, start with a pretty moderate dose and run it like that for a handful of weeks and see if you feel anything. Um, and if you feel like, yeah, I, I feel like a little bit of performance boost. I see the weight coming on a little bit. Everything looks a little bit harder. Everything feels a little bit denser. I don't really notice anything bad happening. Good. That's probably a compound that agrees with you. Um, if you bring in DECA at 200 milligrams and within two weeks, like you're getting just crazy, crazy breakouts and your face is all puffy and stuff like that, it's probably a bad compound for you. So now that doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's bad. Like you got some bum stuff from, you know, Joe blow, uh, who sold it to you in the gym or whatever. I just mean, I mean, maybe that's a possibility as well with a lot of the stuff. If it's black market, you don't necessarily know what it is. Most of these compounds are fairly inexpensive and they're not going to be faked. Um, they're going to do something. We'll talk more about fake stuff later. 
Um, but you know, sometimes, you know, it, it could be tainted. It could be underdosed. Maybe they might try and get away with, you know, stretching, um, a little bit of compound a little further, um, by underdosing it a little bit. But if you get a bad reaction like that, that's probably just a, a compound that doesn't agree with you. Now, if you get a reaction at the injection site, um, like it turns red and, you know, looks kind of like an infection or whatever, um, that's probably you're having a reaction to the oil that the compound is mixed in. So some people have sensitivities to grapeseed oil or linseed oil or whatever they use. So, and that's something where, you know, whatever the source is, is probably going to use that same oil for all that stuff. And if you have a bad reaction to one thing, you're probably going to have a bad reaction of the other stuff that they have as well. Um, and it's worth asking, you know, what do you mix this with, et cetera. And then just say, okay, that might be a bad thing. And then ask that of other sources as well. So, um, and I know a lot of people are thinking, well, it could be an infection. It could be, but here's the thing. Infections take time to develop. And that's how, you know, if you're having just a bad reaction at an injection site versus an infection, if it's red, swollen, hot to the touch, et cetera, the day after you inject, it's not an infection because an infection takes longer than that to develop. So, um, that's how, you know, those kind of reactions are not terribly uncommon. Um, so if you see something like that, it's not like, Oh my God, panic at the same time, be very careful with your sterile injection procedure. And just keep in mind, like you're sticking a needle in yourself. So, you know, there's ways to do that correctly and incorrectly. Um, the good news is it's a standard medical procedure. You can go on YouTube and type in sterile injection procedure, or sterile injection protocol, and find a billion videos that show you exactly how to do it. So, um, pretty easy to do it correctly. It's kind of hard to fuck it up and get it wrong, but it's certainly doable. So, um, now compounds specifically testosterone is a must we know that and you can have a very successful cycle that is just testosterone and if that's the only one that you're playing with then you can really kind of uh play around with the dosage that you use as well a typical physician prescribed trt is going to be somewhere between 150 and 250 milligrams a week you might find a doctor that would prescribe up to 400 i've never seen one that goes beyond that so 500 milligrams is a really good starting dose for your first cycle. 500 milligrams testosterone, run that for 16 weeks and take an aromatase inhibitor along with that, like a Remedex, half a milligram twice a week. Boom. There you go. That is, you know, Dick and Jane's first cycle, you know, probably not Jane's, but Dick's first cycle for sure. So, um, that's a great place to start. And your first cycle, realistically, it takes patience and it takes discipline. Your first cycle should always be just testosterone because it's going to be the basis of every cycle that you run after that. And you want to know how your body responds to that in a vacuum. And, you know, after six to 10 weeks, you're feeling good with that. You could experiment with, you know, bumping it up to 650, 700 milligrams, something like that. You could get more aggressive than that. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. We don't need to try that, but you can say like, Hey, I respond really well to this at 700 milligrams. I didn't really have any side effects that I noticed at all, or I did. And it was this. Okay, cool. Now, come off that, you know, come off completely, finish, finish the cycle out, come off completely or do a bridge where you, you knock it down to 200, let's say, and then plan for a second cycle knowing like, okay, I can tolerate testosterone well up to there. Let me try and, um, on my next cycle, try and do a blast where, you know, maybe we just start with 500, but then we introduce a second compound. And so you kind of inch yourself forward like that, like make it progressively more complex over time. And if, if you're putting together cycles where it's like, okay, I've got these six compounds 
and here's my dosage on week one. Here's my dose on week two. You're way overthinking it. Like it does not need to get that complex. Like you start with something basic for your second cycle. You can do something a little bit more sophisticated for your third cycle. You could try something a little bit more sophisticated, whatever that is. You probably don't need to get any fancier than that. You really don't. At that point, it's just like, Hey, I haven't used this. Let me pull that out and try this instead. And then you're just kind of experimenting. But it doesn't need to get any more complex or sophisticated than maybe what your third cycle might look like, if that makes sense. So other compounds to play with. Um, uh, First choice for me is always going to be equipoise just because it's uh, very mild. Um, It's effective, but it's very mild. A lot of people don't like it because it doesn't hit like a sledgehammer like Trend does. Um, You know, it's going to give you a nice little boost, nice little boost in strength. Um, nice little boost in size um, and extremely low occurrence of side effects. Uh, there's really no downside to it other than it's not the most powerful thing in the world. But the most powerful things in the world, they, they carry additional consequences with them. So um, another thing that fits into that same category of mild and effective would be primobolin. Um, the issue there and the reason why I would typically favor equipoise over primobol and they're fairly similar compounds as far as how they respond, uh, how most people's um, bodies will respond to them Um, primo is almost always at a concentration of 100 milligrams per milliliter Um, equipoise is either at 200, 250 or 300 usually Um, so the the concentration by the way let's do the math here uh, pretty much everything comes in 10 uh, milliliter vials. So if you have 100 milligrams per milliliter, that means you have 1,000 milligrams of compound in that vial, 1,000 milligrams. With Primo, you might run 300 milligrams a week. So one of those vials is going to last you a little more than three weeks. Um, Versus Equipoise, let's say you have some EQ that's 300 milligrams per milliliter. Well, that vial has 3,000 milligrams of compound. If you run the same dose, which, you know, 300 or 400 of EQ is pretty reasonable. Now, suddenly that vial is going to run you 10 weeks instead of three. That's what concentration does for you. So it makes it more economical. It also makes for smaller injections, which is kind of nice. So, um, the other thing is Primo is always more expensive. Um, so it's more expensive and it doesn't go nearly as far. So now you're looking at like, well, that's, you know, that's going to add like another zero onto the cost of your cycle at that point. It gets kind of pricey. So, you know, you might be able to find EQ for 60 or 70 bucks for a 10 milliliter vial. Again, that's 3000 milligrams potentially. Um, Primo is often going to run you 80 or a hundred bucks for a 10 milliliter vial um, or even 110. That's only got a thousand milligrams in it. Do the math. So, um, yeah, equipoise is far more economical. Now, if Primo delivered um, an order of magnitude greater results, then yeah, it'd be worth it. If it was three times more effective than EQ, great, but it's not. It's not. So I think EQ is usually the smart move for people. So if you're looking for a second compound, one of those two, and you know, flip a coin for me, it's always going to come up on the side of EQ for sure. Um, Trend is a very controversial compound. Um, some people swear by it. Some people swear away from it and won't touch the stuff. Um, personally, I'm a fan. I like it. I think it's effective. It's not for everybody. And it's one of those things where a little can go a long way. So that's one of those where, you know, if your test is at 500, um, if you're running EQ at three or 400, if you're going to introduce trend, I might introduce it at 150 or something like that. Um, Like start small, even 100, which is fine. Like do, you know, 50 twice a week, something like that. Just a little bit. See how it feels. See how it hits you. Um, Trend is one of those that usually carries some side effects with it. It can be some insomnia or some night sweats. Um, there can be a fairly aggressive cough that's associated with it um, right after injecting. Um, 
that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. The, the, the night sweats, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, that doesn't sound too bad. And then you experience it and you're like, holy shit, that is disgusting. I mean, th- there are times when, you know, it can, it can be like, oh, okay, that, that's, that's, that's a little gross. And then there are other times where you're like, I woke up and my bed was a swimming pool. Like, what the fuck? Oh, my God. So just keep in mind, like, that's a possibility. Um, doesn't hit everybody. And certainly it doesn't, even if it does hit you, it's not necessarily going to hit you all the time or every night or anything like that. So, um, there's certainly, uh, certainly some variability in that for sure. A lot of people do have, um, issues related to like cholesterol on trend. So that's another thing to consider if you're, if you're sensitive and your cholesterol numbers are a little out of whack, it might just be a poor choice of compound for you. Um, DECA I mentioned before is not one of my favorites. Um, it's one of those that I have a bias against it that I really have a tough time putting my finger on other than, um, when somebody runs it and it's effective and does what it needs to do, um, it's really not a good look. Like some people just don't respond terribly well to it. And if you do respond really well, you just kind of look fat. Like it's just not a good look. I I don't care for it. Um, you know, you want to, it's good to favor compounds that kind of promote, what, what would be classified as lean, dry gains. DECA is not that. DECA is like messy, watery gains. Like, it's just not a look that I think really goes well on too many people. So, um, what other compounds might we throw into the mix here? Um, I mean, you could talk about growth hormone. You could talk about insulin. You could talk about um, IGF. You know, none of those are necessarily what I would, what I would classify as anabolics. Um, those are the big ones, honestly. You know, if we if we take orals out of the mix, which I think is a smart move in most cases, um, it really oh, Masteron is a good one actually. That, that's one that you know some some anabolics are really very situational, and Masteron is one of those. Like I would never recommend that for somebody on a growth phase, but on a cut, honestly, um, I think having a, a if you're going to run a cycle and you're you're fairly experienced and you've run several compounds in the past. If you're doing a cut and Masteron is not part of the equation for the last half of it or so, I think it's probably a mistake. Um, I'm a big fan of that. Um, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much about it. God, we've been talking for an hour and 15 minutes, so it's probably a good time to wrap this thing up anyway. But I think I got out most of what I wanted to say there. So certainly I hope that this sparks some conversation and um, sparks some questions. So if you've got questions, let me know. Hit me up on social media, Instagram at Darren underscore star, um, Facebook.com slash five star physique. Uh, where else? Just your website, thedropset.com or five star physique.com. Uh, you can email me directly, Darren at five fivestarfitness.com or just go to the website fivestarphysique.com click on contact and fill out the form there so uh, lots of ways to get a hold of me let me know your thoughts give me some feedback um share this episode go like uh go rate the podcast leave a review you can now on spotify you can leave star ratings um on podcasts so if you do that if you listen on spotify go do that i would appreciate it greatly any feedback you got for me, always awesome. Um, share these. Uh, you know, if, if you like it, you know other people that might like it too. Share it with them. See if we can uh, grow the audience a little bit. I would so much appreciate it. Have a great week, everybody.